Get ready, it's time. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Each episode of Motherhood Talk Radio features guests who all have a story, experts in their field, and information you won't want to miss. We bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s. From great parenting tips to moms facing some tough challenges, and most importantly, how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey, everybody. This is Sandra Beck, and we've got such a great show today because we're going to be talking about money. And not only are we going to be talking about money, but we're going to be talking about our relationship with money. And a couple years ago, I came across this book called The Money Nerve, written by Bob Wheeler. And it was fantastic because it helped me understand my own relationship with money. So I called up Bob. We've got him back for another episode. And we're going to talk today about people's relationships with money. Bob, I didn't even know people had a relationship with money. I didn't know I had a relationship with money. And when your book came across my desk, I was thinking, huh, you know what? Money does hit a nerve in my household. Money does hit a nerve with me. And it's not a good one. (laughs) It's there, even if we don't know it's there. I mean, and that's what's been my whole you know, the last several years have just been really focused on this because I kept Mm -hmm. discovering that when I would work with tax clients, they would make decisions that had nothing to do with the conversation we just had and everything to do with their belief system that they might've heard from their parents Mm -hmm. that they learned in school or just their own self self doubt that, uh, that they were capable and so really got fascinated by this, this relationship where even in something as simple as splitting the bill with a bunch of friends at a restaurant brings up all kinds of, I didn't have the wine, um, you know, or let's pay for it because I don't have any money. And, and, and just to watch somebody split the bill, uh, you can watch the relationship with money just completely unravel. And so as I got into this, just really understanding that people feel so alone in the financial decisions that they make and feeling that they've gotten it wrong or they didn't get the download, starting to just get that awareness so we can start removing the stigma of shame around how we interact with our finances. Well, and I can tell you, I had some pretty big aha moments in reading your book. You know, I come from immigrant parents. I have Mm -hmm. a German-born father. I have a, well, I had a uh, Polish-Ukrainian-born mother, and they were both depression. I was a late-in-life baby. I was 40 when my mom had me. You know, my dad is currently 87, and I could see the different relationships with money only when I started looking for it. Like when my mother died, Bob, we found all these little bags of money around. She had 
like little lunch bags filled with coins or bills and they were tied together and she had them in a coat pocket in the closet. You know, there was money hidden everywhere. And my mother was very poor and she was a really poor immigrant. And um, her mother died when she was young and, you know, it was just her and her mom in the world. So money had a lot of issues with them. Now on my grandparents' side, on my German grandparents' side, they were educated store owners in Germany. Well, they came here and they opened a little shop and they all worked in this little meat shop in Rochester, New York. And they had grandma, grandpa, my aunts and uncles, everybody had a job, everybody had something. And they all came together and they lived in the same brownstone, you know, three stories high with, you know, my great grandma, my aunts and uncles, and, you know, everybody worked together communally for money, but there was always anxiety about money. My mother never had enough on my father's side. It was, how was it divided up? And so, you know, as the product of these two kind of money generations and, you know, them being immigrants here, money was always an issue in our household, not enough, how it's spent, did you overspend? Could you get a better deal on this? And then I married into a very first generation Jewish family that had abundance. They had a very different way of thinking. They had no problem spending money on their relatives and their family and the people they worked with, which were all relatives and family. But when it came to an outsider like me, it was a whole different story. And, you know, there are two different kind of generational stories, but you could see how it would leave me just absolutely befuddled with do I love money? Do I hate money? Do I share money? Do I save money? Do I try to get the least amount of money paid for the most amount of service? Or do I look at a relationship with this person and I need to be fair to keep the relationship going? All of those things were like balls in the air for me. Yeah, absolutely. And this starts so young. You know, when we're four and five, we you know, we might, I remember seeing a kid at the, at the toy store in February and the mom was saying, that's it. I'm going to tell Santa, you're not getting anything next year. And the kid is going into PTSD, right? He's screaming, but mama, please, please don't tell Santa. You know, this is a four-year-old kid. Um, that kind of stuff has trauma, long-term effects. You're selfish, you're greedy. You ask for too many things. Um, I've worked with people that, single moms, right? And their single mom had to work two jobs to put food on the table, but their friends' mommies had lunches for them and did mommy things. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like my mom because she's not ladylike. She's out trying to work to keep food on the table. How unladylike. So there's all these different things that we pick up as, as, as kids and we go, oh, I got to be aware of that. Don't forget this. Or, oh, I'm not worthy. I shouldn't ask. Bob, I'm just going to jump in here right now because it's a perfect time to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor today is Talkspace. And as we talk about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves and the thoughts we have and how they kind of affect our relationship with spending and money and how things go in our household, it's a great alignment with Talkspace because when you put your mental health and your emotional health first, especially in these uncertain times, it has this huge trickle down effect, making everything in your life 
life better. You know, your relationships get stronger, your self-worth grows, you make better decisions. And these are just a few reasons why working with a therapist to finally prioritize my mental health has truly changed my life for the better across the board. And you guys all know, I really recommend Talkspace for therapy. I like it because you can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. And you can text or video or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's super convenient to have virtual sessions from your own home. And when we're juggling everything else under the sun as full-time working moms from home, managing childcare, managing daycare, managing some kids are in school, some are not. I have one in school, one not in school yet. I mean, it is a nightmare and the schools are only half days. So it is super stressful for me running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And I'm a single mom and I also care for my 87 year old dad. So these are some really big stressors on me. And I love my therapist. I love that she gives me tips and tricks and she helps me see things in a different way. And Talkspace is a place to go to get one because they are affordable. They're a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. And instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24 seven, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Their network is huge. They have thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience and over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating so much more. How about your relationship with money? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? Do you feel guilty if you spend on yourself? I know I have all of these things. And Talkspace is secure. It's secure and private, and it uses the latest end-to-end bank grant encryption technology to store client information, that's your information, and complies with the latest HIPAA regulations. So as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. So to match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure you use the code MOTHERHOODTALK to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's MOTHERHOODTALK and Talkspace.com. You know, Bob, we were talking about, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories we learned in childhood that really affect the decisions that we're making today as adults. We just start building up all these stories that as four and five and six-year-olds, we shouldn't be dis- we shouldn't be left with the decision to discern whether it's truth or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because later on, we need, we need a software update and, and we're still working off these stories that we picked up as children. Well, and that's, you know, that you, you said something like really that hit home about the single mom story. I've been a single mom for 16 years, soul supporting. And it's a little funny story, but when... Caitlyn Jenner came out. Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner. Right, right. My little kids, they were like four and six at the time, and they thought I was a man underneath. And I said, why would you think I'm a man underneath? You know, I'm tall, I'm blonde, I'm, I'm, you know, very feminine. But they saw me go to work. They saw me work with the military. They saw me do all these things and they saw me control the money. And so their perception was money equals dad. So dad is mom is dad, you know, and it was kind of a cute conversation. But one of the things that I think single parent kids have, especially if they live with a soul supporting parent and there is no other parent in the picture providing much 
is the concept of not asking. My kids have learned not to ask for anything because when they asked for things, especially when they were small, Bob, I could barely keep a roof overhead. We had no back window in our car. This is Southern California living at poverty level, you know, as I'm trying to juggle childcare and work and, you know, eventually formed my own media company because I couldn't I couldn't sustain a single mom on the freeway stuck for two hours. Now the school's mad. They're charging me money. Nobody's there to pick up my kid. You know, it just all came crushing down. And thankfully I could form my own company. I had the education and, and background to do so, but not many people can. So I'm very aware that my kids have been raised to not ask for anything. Yeah. And it's so interesting when we talk about, money and especially kids um when it comes to gender things like that like you must be really the dad secretly Mm -hmm. right that starts early and even though people will sometimes say to me bob that's so old school it's so equal these days it's not and that that history we carry with us so we carry the history of our grandparents Mm -hmm. and our great grandparents and and even though it's subtle it's there and if we're not aware of it we're sort of working blind. Bob, I'm just going to jump in here for a second because our episode today is sponsored by Apostrophe. And Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Now, Apostrophe is spelled A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, apostrophe.com, and go to slash motherhood and use our code motherhood. This code's only available for our listeners. Um, So check it out as I'm telling you about this great product. And you know, prescription acne treatment really works, but it's hard to get, especially as moms when we're juggling everything and you have to take time off work to see the doctor, sit in line at the pharmacy for your medications. However, with Apostrophe, Apostrophe makes it easy to see a board-certified dermatologist online. You get treatment immediately, and your medications are delivered to your home. And I did this, you guys. It's so great. You just fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin concerns and your medical history. Then you use your cell phone and snap a few selfies for your dermatologist to get back to you. And there's a customized treatment plan that shows up in your you know, your account. And the best part is that Apostrophe offers topical and oral medications so you can treat your acne from the inside out and the outside in. They also help you hit other skincare goals like reducing redness and and wrinkles and dark spots. And for me, it was rosacea. And, you know, my kids struggle with acne. And I wish this was around for me when I was younger, and I can get my kids acne treatment from home. Apostrophe can get your kids started as early as 14 years old. So this is really important because you know how your kids are. They don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to sit there and have somebody look at their skin and their face. I mean, all of this, especially as young teenagers, is so embarrassing. So to be able to do this online and take a few pictures and then have the product come in the mail, my product came just a couple days later, and the packaging is cute. It's it's discreet. So I was really, really pleased about um, the products that I was given. So if you want to get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash motherhood and use our code motherhood. Now, this code's only available for listeners. So if you want to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash motherhood and click begin visit. Then use the code motherhood at sign up and you'll get $15 off your first 
dermatology visit. That's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash motherhood. Use that code motherhood to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And you know what? Thank you, apostrophe, for sponsoring our podcast today. And thank you for giving a place for our embarrassed teens to get help for their acne. Parents get help for their rosacea and dark spots and wrinkles all within the privacy of your own home. That is super cool, you guys. So go to apostrophe.com slash motherhood. Use that code motherhood to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this podcast. So Bob, you know, I, I can tell you my anxiety went off the charts when I got divorced. And, you know, one day I'm married with a successful husband. The next day he gets up, walks out on the cars, the house, the kids, and says, you know what? Screw you. You're not getting anything. I'm self-employed. Prove it. And sure enough, I'm like, okay. So, you know, it took me, you know, probably five years to recover from that. But the anxiety, I didn't want to go to the mailbox because the mailbox only met bills. And the kids are like, mom, you know, are you mad at us? And I'm not mad at them. I'm scared of the mailbox. Like, you know, these things leave an impact, but how your parents dealt with money also leaves its imprint. And being aware of that helped me learn. One of the things I learned from your book was to go, you know what, kids, I'm just anxious about the bills or I'm anxious about the money. And I started to explain to them, don't let my money anxiety be your money anxiety. You guys are both boys. You're going to grow into educated men. You can work for what you want. You don't have to be afraid all the time. Yeah. It's so important to have these conversations with kids because they don't know, you know, I had a friend whose grandfather invented a, a, you know, a very popular ice cream dessert, but they walked around saying like, oh my God, we're going to lose the house every moment. So even though he had a chauffeur, even though they lived in a mansion, even though they had all these things, he as a kid grew up thinking they were in extreme poverty because he didn't have any kind of benchmark. Right. And, and so he's just like, oh my God, we're going to lose the house. We're going to be in the streets. And they had millions and millions of dollars. It wasn't until later that he was like, okay, hmm. folks that grew up in the depression era, you were sort of working from a place of scarcity and you didn't let me in on that. So that was my benchmark. And well, and they so probably didn't know. They didn't. And and to be fair, you know, the grandparents had experienced a lot of scarcity. They'd been through the depression. And so they hadn't worked through their fear. And but being able to tell a kid, look, we can't afford that right now, versus shut up and go to your room, it's just a lot more helpful in their development around working with finance. It is. It is. Well, and one of the stories that my kids love to tell everybody is the, we call it the Xbox story. Mm-hmm. All the other kids have Xboxes. Well, my priority was keeping a roof over our heads, keeping my car running. That was it. Like after that, all the money was done. Yeah. But I did have a pool in my house. You know, there was, I couldn't sell my house. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sell my house till my kids turned 19. So I either pay the money for the house or I foreclose, but not right. really good options. So <laughs> yeah. The pool was not operational for a couple of years. Well, I finally figured out how to work the pool equipment myself, keep the pool clean, balance the chemicals, you know, do all these things. Okay, fine. So I thought to myself, well, my kids really want an Xbox and it's 110 out because it's August. Right. So I put out a birthday invitation and I said just very nicely in the invitation, no gifts necessary, but if you would like to bring a birthday gift, 
you know, a Walmart gift card of any amount would be appreciated. You know, because I do appreciate when a mom gives me some direction because kids have sure. so much today. Yeah. So we end up with this pool party with like 70 people. And we got like $1,200 in gift cards for Walmart because people kept calling me going, well, what is he saving up for? I'm like, well, he'd really like an Xbox. I can't afford it. It's not in the budget. And then they'd be like, oh, games are so expensive. So here's an extra gift card for this. And, you know, I was so grateful and thankful for the people who supported me in that. And it not only paid for the Xbox, but it paid for the party. You know, it paid for a couple games, like the whole thing. Some pool equipment. Some pool equipment, like the chlorine, uh, you know all these things. But the reality was that was a fair exchange. The kids had a great party. Most everyone invited, I think everyone invited knew I was a struggling single mom. I did pay for a lifeguard to be there because, you know, I'm afraid of getting sued or having a kid. But the kids at that point learned the power of trade. And basically I traded a pool party in a community where there is no public pool on a hot you know, time of the year to come. And they got the idea, you know, we can actually trade things. Absolutely. And just even knowing that you have that asset, right. To say, oh, how can I parlay this into an Xbox? (laughs) Right. Right. A little creative thinking outside the box. Absolutely. And when the kids were younger, there was a lady in town who did swim lessons. I'm the only pool in this, you know, kind of 600 home community by the grace of God. And so I'm like, well, why don't you come here? You can teach swim lessons and you can rent my pool. So she rented my pool for private swim lessons. That's great. You know, things like that, that I would have never, all I looked at the pool was a liability. It costs me more to run it. It's, you know, a danger. I have to have this ridiculous fence. I need to have the pool alarms, the whole thing. And then it just struck me that some of the things that we have can be exchanged for money. Who knew? Who knew? And, you know, I sometimes think that because we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I think because I didn't have a lot of money, I learned to be a lot more creative. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to make things work. You know, aluminum foil was my friend when I needed a costume. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and so like if you're in a place where there's just money and money, you don't have to think about it. You sort of take it for granted, but when you're actually having to look at options, you actually can get more creative and and actually figure out ways to make things work for you. Well, and I think, you know, anybody can be rich, but it takes a really conscious person to Mm -hmm. live well when you don't have money, you know, like making choices. Like one of the things that, you know, in our divorce that worked out really well, I thought was, my, my modest, very modest upbringing paid off yeah. because I knew how to live on the cheap. I knew how to use eggs instead of steak and, you know, water down the milk, you know, water <laughs> down the orange juice. My kids today still hate watered down orange juice. They're like, oh mine used to stretch that thing. It was really just yellow water in the glass. It's, no uh, flavor. We, we drank the same orange juice. I remember <laughs> when sometimes we went to somebody's house and we were like, this tastes like oranges (laughs) because they don't use five cans of water. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm. Me, I'm sort of used to the, to the orange water. (laughs) Well, that's true. Now I like the watered down orange juice. Like it tastes normal to me. It's normal. But 
you know, to talk a little bit about how generational spending is handed down. I have a great story, Bob, when I went to college and here, you know, I come from this little modest, you know, little modest farmhouse with a bunch of brothers and sisters and a dad who works and a mom who, you know, stays home and, and tries to keep us all, in, you know, it, you know, in clothes of hand-me-downs, like the whole, yeah. you know, the whole good story of behind that. Then I get this wild Northwestern University full scholarship to a private exclusive university. And all of a sudden yeah. I have a roommate who has a BMW, not, yeah. not a family BMW, just the yeah, BMW her. for just her. Hers. Oh yeah. Just hers, you know, and all these things and, you know, surrounded by such wealth. And the first time her brother asked me out, we go to the restaurant and we were never allowed to order a drink at, a, at you know, like if we went, it was burgers only. It was, yep. you know, French fries only, you know, yep. drinks were an, a, you know, kind of an expense that was out of my family's budget. Yeah. So when they came and asked me what I would like to drink, you know, I ordered water and he's like, are you sure you don't want something? And it's like, I say to the waiter, well, what do you have? And he starts rattling off all these sodas. And I'm like, that was so out of my wheelhouse, literally. Yeah. I didn't know what to order. I called my older sister and I'm like, oh my God, I went on a date and they asked me what to have to drink. I didn't even know because I've never ordered a drink, not even alcohol, you know, just right. a soda, like yeah. in my life. And so, you know, there's things that that money does to you that changes you versus my ex-husband who never even thought about ordering a meal, taking two bites and leaving it. Right. Which would not have happened to my household. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we had a big family, same kind of thing. It, it's uh, $5 or less on the menu. <laughs> you know, and you, you got creative. Right. And we <laughs> laugh about it, but it also did, you know, it still strikes me today, Bob, when, my kids were little and they would order a drink with their meal and then they wouldn't finish it. I would yeah. cup it up and take it home because, you know, waste is waste. And that's yeah. a really hard thing to teach kids in an affluent society. It, it is. And, you know, I, I also went to a very exclusive college that had a lot of wealthy kids. And I remember one time in the, the dining hall, I was eating my food and I was not happy about it. I was eating it because I wanted some more of something else. And they were like, what are you doing? I said, well, I have to finish my plate before I can go back and have any more. And they're like, are your parents here? And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, but that's the rule. <laughs> right. No matter where you go, that's the rule. You must eat all the food because there are starving kids. That's right. And uh, they were like, Bob, watch this. And they took my plate away from <laughs> me and they went, who stand and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. It's that's very true. Yeah. It's very true. You know, when I when my kids waste something, you know, I kind of, you know, they're like mom's a little nutty with this stuff because waste is waste. And you know, yeah. I try to explain to them, like, look, all of the food in the fridge represents my hard work. It represents my time yeah. away from you. It represents my time away from the things I want to do. And you know, so when you throw something out or you pour half of it down the drain because you poured all of the salad dressing yeah. on your salad and then tossed it out and you weren't mindful of uh. that food is money. Yeah. Like that's a, that's and in our, our society, you know, Bob, I used to work for this really fancy seafood restaurant in New York and 
people would throw away lobsters all the time. You yeah, know, they sure. would eat the tail only, leave the claws, maybe eat a claw. The girl would daintily pick at something. And then the, the plate would come back and I would literally take the lobster because it's in a shell. Nobody, yeah. you know, nobody touched it. Not like they infused it with their own personal bacteria. Right. I would pick that lobster up. I'd throw it in a bag and I would put it in the cooler and eat it for my dinner because to yeah. me I was like this is so great like I get to eat lobster you know and people are horrified my kids are horrified when I tell them the lobster story but you know it's not like it was the 10 second rule no exactly but you know it's funny that you say that because I had a friend that I, we went out to dinner years ago and she or I was like get whatever you want you know I, I could spend at that point and she ordered the swordfish ate one bite and then went I'm done and I I was like we can't be friends I, <laughs> that, or let me eat it. I mean, which I couldn't bring myself to do, which sometimes I do. I'm like, just let me eat that because I'm I, it can't be wasted. But I really, I had to rethink my relationship. I was so devastated that she would just with a blink of an eye go, yeah, I had a bite. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. That would be a deal breaker for me. That was my hard earned money. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, but it's, it's, it's not just our hard earned money. It's bigger than that. It's yeah. the idea that it's okay to waste. And it's, you know, there is some waste. I get that. Like there are things that are wasted. That's a natural part of life, but it's how you how you engineer and accept, you know, if that fish was bad, we wouldn't have a problem with it being wasted. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. Well, no, I was going to, you know, it's interesting. I do think that because we have such affluence in this country, even the poorer folks have opportunities that other countries don't. And I, when I was in Africa, I'd throw away a jar. I'd throw away a little glass with, and, and they would say, could I, could I have that? Right. And I'm like, it's a jar, it's trash. They're like, oh no, I can store seeds in that. I can use it for jewelry. Yep. And it so taught me uh, how precious, like things that I just take for granted. And, um, for them, they were like, oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you. Right. This is, and they saw the value in it and the value of not wasting. Well, yeah. And any kid I think who has depression era parents, I mean, I've got a whole, you know, <laughs> got a whole cabinet full of jelly jars and jam jars and, you know, that I, you know, we use when I give food away or I, you know, send food with the kids. It's in a, you know, reused jar, not one of those fancy like Batman thermoses, yeah. you know, there's things <laughs> like that, but it is an awareness. And I think that's mm -hmm. the thing about having a relationship with money is to look at, yes, it's a tradable commodity and we trade yeah. money for these things. So, you know, what, what does that mean? And this is where I find some people push away money. I see this yeah. a lot with the people who work for me where I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm happy to pay you to do X, Y, and Z. And they'll go, Oh no, you don't have to pay me. Okay. I offered, right. <laughs> and you're being really nice, but you're literally pushing away money. And I want to yeah. say, why are you doing that? Like, yeah, it's an exchange. Like, I think you're a nice person and I will think you're a nice person and gladly pay you $25 to do this. And I think that's where examining your relationship with money gets healthier. Cause I used to be one that pushed that money away. Oh, I'll just be yeah. helpful. I can be helpful thinking somehow the magic money fairy is going to drop money in my account, but to have money and understand that there's no emotion to it. Yeah. It's just an exchange. It's just something to exchange for something else, I think, is a very healthy way to look at it. 
It is. And, you know, it's it's so interesting because I see it, especially with therapists and people in uh, uh, service industry of caring for other people, that somehow there's a belief that it takes away the value of my good work if I receive money, because right. then I'm then I'm loving money. And the whole quote in the Bible is not the, it's the love of money, not money itself. And so money is a tool we use all the time. We're using it to, to give us a place to live for us to eat. Um, we're constantly making money decisions every day, all the day. And um, so to just to be conscious of that and know that money is a natural part of the exchange in life. And it's not that we're a good or bad person because we receive it. Right. Or we pay for it or don't get paid for it. You know, like I look at like, you know, am I, I I had this problem when I first worked in Beverly Hills, here I am, you like this little hick that gets this world-class education ends up in Beverly Hills. And there was a man there, my manager who would come to me every day and demand copies for this copies for that. Now the copy machine, Bob literally was like next to my desk. So why he couldn't put it down and, you know, push the button and I would, he would stand there while I would make the copy. So he would give me the paper. I would get up, I'd make the copy and then I'd hand it back to him and then he would leave. And I'm thinking, you know, does he not know how to use the copy machine? Like, you know, kind of what's going on here. And then finally, one day he came to me and he said, you know, I need you to make two copies of this. And I said, okay, only if you can tell me my name. And then I smiled. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I, I'm a, I'm a person, not a machine. So if you want to just push a button, the copy machine's right there. But if you want me to make it, I'd like to, I'd like you to know my name. And that was a big part of me. Yeah. I almost got fired over it too. By the way. <laughs> I think but, that's awesome. <laughs> but the whole point was that I am a person and not a machine. And right. if you said to me, Bob, San, would you make this copy for me? I'd really appreciate it. I will copy till the cows come home. I will copy your whole life, everything and do it with a joyful, glad heart. But if you don't treat me in a way that's even human. Yeah. So that got me to thinking of, you know, what is an exchange? You know, there was no exchange there. There was no, you know, Mm -hmm. yes, I was paid to do a job, but I wasn't paid to be treated like a machine. I wasn't, you know, and, it, it got me to thinking of what exactly am I paid to do? Well, I was paid to write copy. I was paid to write advertising copy for real estate, not help some jerk real estate agent make a copy right. of his, his whatever. And it also got me to thinking of, you know, what is my role within this? And yeah. if our role is to help, to be helpful, mm-hmm. receiving money or not receiving money has nothing to do with it. You know, me helping this guy or not helping me, helping this guy really had nothing to do with my job description. It wasn't my, you know, it wasn't my anything. The guy and the guy didn't know my name. He couldn't tell me his name. So when I get called on the carpet to the boss and he's like, you know, you were rude to him. And I'm like, really? I said, all I said was, I'll make your copy if you can tell me my name. You know, it was very interesting to go, what is, what is the exchange? You know, what, yeah. what is, what are we exchanging? So if you're helping someone do something and they offer money back or offer you to pay something for them, 
by not accepting it, you're actually ruining the exchange process because you feel good helping them, the person who needs help. If they can afford it, they help you back. And even if they give you $5 for a cup of coffee or whatever, you're now priming that pump for goodwill and exchange. And so if we stop the exchange, if I say, no, Bob, I won't accept any money from you for, you know, helping jump your car or helping do whatever, I've now stopped the flow. I've stopped the flow of money. I've stopped the flow of exchange. And I've put it up to some sort of arbitrary decision-making as to what is my mood? What am I thinking about? And and why am I doing this? And that to me is dangerous. Absolutely. It's so important. You know, there's that old quote, you know, it's better to give than receive. Actually, it's good to give and receive. <laughs> it's like it needs to be a natural balance because it it messes things up when it's only giving or only receiving. Well, it's unnatural. You know, unnatural. let's look at nature. You know, you've got nature, you've got a tree. If a tree just gives off oxygen all day long and we don't breathe it and return back carbon dioxide, the people yeah. die, the tree dies. Well, it's right. the same thing with the money commodity. You know, it's the yeah. same thing with interpersonal relationships. And I think that's why it's so important that we have these conversations to really examine you know, why are you refusing that money? This was the conversation I had in my head. I'm like, okay, when people offer me money, I refuse it. Why? Because I was taught accepting money as impolite. Well, that's stupid. So when I get my paycheck from my boss, (laughs) am I supposed to refuse that because it's impolite? You know, we have all these different kind of beliefs in here and some of them really limit and if i believe that an exchange of pay fair pay for fair good work is the rule why would i then refuse it because i feel uncomfortable or i feel that it's somehow wrong and if it's wrong in this instance instance why is it right in another absolutely and i think you know what really happens what really happens I think what really happens is that um, when we talk about money, it requires that we might actually have to have difficult conversations and we might have to set boundaries. And those two things we are just not taught how to do, to have the difficult conversation, stay in a difficult conversation, you know, or even just name. I'm not comfortable taking money um, because of a belief system I had. And I'm partially attracted to wanting to take the money. And so I'm in this bind and then being able to actually in a non-shameful way, be able to share, this is the struggle that I go through. This is the voices in my head um, and, and, and being able to actually have those conversations that most of us don't have because we're embarrassed or ashamed. Right. And we don't talk about them to our kids or our families. We don't talk about, you know, what is money? And, and yeah. what does money serve? And, you know, for those of you that have a certain belief system, you know, is money a false God? And if it is, what does that look like? You know, it doesn't mean it's a false God when you get your paycheck after a long day's work. You know, it doesn't mean it's a false God. You know, you, we can, we can, we can debate these things, but having a healthy debate on these topics, especially with your kids means examining your own first. Before just parroting back a belief system that maybe worked in the depression and that's great, but maybe it doesn't work today. Maybe it has to be examined and modified. And that's how we allow 
ourselves to grow and improve. Yeah, absolutely. It's again, it's about having these conversations. It's about like getting past the shame, getting past the embarrassment and getting into real conversations. I I know so many um, couples that come to me and they want to have a, they want to have an conversation about money, but what they really mean is we need to have an argument about money right. um, and we need to know who's right. And I'll often say to the couple, so I want to ask you something before I answer so you can figure out who's right or wrong. Are you guys playing on the same team? Are you guys, um, is this a, whoever wins is going to get the most, or are you actually trying to work together as a cohesive team? And they're always like, oh, oh, oh right. We're, Oh, right. We're a team. Okay. Right. But there's this mindset like, no, I got to get them. I got to prove them. I got to win. I got to be right. Like, is this about being right? Or is this about being in a relationship? You know, I've said that to my kids. My mom would say that to my dad, you want to be right. Or you want to sleep on the couch, like, you know, (laughs) kind of things. Cause, cause what's your end game? You know, that's what you're talking about is what's your end game. When you say you want to have a conversation about money, do you want to have that person adopt your belief? Do you want that person to do what you say? Like, what's the end game? Or do you want to work things out? Because what I found, Bob, you know, and I had a very difficult marriage for a couple of different reasons. We had two different belief systems, tough, tough road to begin with. We had two different economic realities. You know, one had a big safety net, the other one didn't. But I think the biggest difficulty, if I can be so bold, was not the emotional abuse, was not the cheating and the lying in my book. Right. (laughs) The thing that was hardest to get over for me was you took the money I earned and spent it on another woman. You took the money I earned and took her out to dinner when you didn't take me out. And, you know, with lots of soul searching, you know, when people have an affair or in my case, multiple affairs, I pulled the plug on the marriage when the kids were three months old and two and a half years old, you know, he walked out, walked out on all the finances that gave me a really good slap in the face about where does my belief with money lie? Because yeah, it stung my ego that he cheated on me, stung my ego that he walked out on me, all those things hurt. But what hurt the most for me was the financial abuse, was the financial that you took your money or our money, or I was the primary breadwinner at the time and spent it on someone else. And that was really an interesting kind of aha moment for me to go of all the transgressions. (laughs) One of them that sticks in my craw the most was you took the money I spent that was for our family and spent it on someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, because we do really have to, what is the end game? Yeah. What, like, what are we trying to achieve? And I think so many relationships get caught up with being right instead of being in relationship. Right. And there's lots of right. You know, when I went to journalism school, I did my undergraduate at Northwestern in journalism and my my business degree for my for my uh, master's degree. And in journalism school, they staged this mock like event. And we're all sitting there in the classroom, all these little budding journalists learning how to, you know, do the who, what, when, where, why and how somebody ran in and grabbed the teacher's purse and ran out. So we were all sitting there going, Ooh, what happened? So the teacher had us write down everything we knew about him. So she said, was it a man or a woman? Was he 
he or she tall or short, what color hair, what color, what were they wearing? And, you know, we had maybe 28, 30 kids in the classroom or young adults in the classroom. And she did this chart on the wall that said how many thought he had, it was a he or she. And about three quarters saw one gender and a quarter saw another gender. Wow. You know, and they had, I remember the person, I don't, I think it was a guy, but he had a hat on, you know, like a stocking cap, not a, not a baseball cap, just a neutral unisex cap. They had him in a jean jacket and a t-shirt, black pants, sneakers, like no bag, no purse, like no identifying anything on purpose so that we could look at our own perceptions and go wearing glasses, no glasses. I mean, we had so many things and then they had the person come back in and stand there. And we had to fact check what we saw. Wow. That's awesome. And almost everybody got about 50%. There was not one person in the room that was Sheldon Cooper, you know, like with an eidetic (laughs) memory, like, you know, freezing in time and getting all these things right. And they're like, there it is. So when you're arguing a right, you're so sure you're right that his scarf was red. Some people saw blue, some people saw green. And, you know, that to me always meant, you know, our memories are not perfect. Our impressions are not finite. And we interpret so much given on our own relationship. If I had a red scarf, I remember I thought it was red plaid because my favorite scarf was red plaid. Yeah. Well, his scarf, it was a he, now I remember, but his scarf was red, no plaid, just solid. Right. Red, no plaid. Yeah. And I think that's true in so many places in life where we, um, you know, I, I don't remember the statistic, but much of what's given as fact is the majority of it's actually opinion. It's, it's filtered. It's our own take on it. And, and, and it's really only a small percent that is actually the factual piece, right? Because it's been so nuanced and layered with all of our interpretations and our agendas and our judgments. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important, you know, Bob, that that books are written like yours, you know, to to get people thinking and talking in a different way. I would encourage anybody who's a parent to get on themoneynerve.com to learn how emotions underpin our relationship with money and our relationship with others. You know, that, you know, we talked about that kind of societal generational, you know, belief system around money and, and what it represents. And those are things... I think it should be in every premarital couples counseling. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the more we can get clear before we go into relationships, um, the more we can be on the same page and, and have a much more effective and amazing relationship when we right, get conscious. Because if I understand, Bob, let's say you and I are in a mock relationship. If I yeah. understand, you know, that for you, waste is, is a, a physical reaction in you. I will make sure, you know, if we're out to eat that I'm modest in my ordering because I can always order more. Like there are little micro adjustments people can make to each other when they understand why something is so important to someone or why they act the way they do. Because if you love the person you're with, wouldn't you want to get along with them rather than be right? Absolutely. It goes much, it's, it's much smoother sailing. (laughs) It is absolutely. So where can people get a copy of your book, the money nerve? So they can find it on the website, themoneynerve.com. 
They can get it at Amazon. We also have now an online course called Mastering the Emotions of Money. That's a 12-week course that takes people through their history, teaches them about budgeting, learning to set goals, learning about your legacy, and and just sort of really reestablishing that relationship with money and our mindset. Love that. Love that. So, Bob, I think this is the first of many conversations we're going to have going forward. I really enjoyed our time together today. Check out themoneynerve.com. Think about your relationship with money. And especially if you have kids, make sure that your money fears are not handed down to them and that you guys have these open, honest dialogues about money. And you know what? My favorite saying is, would you rather be right or would you rather be in a relationship? Maybe this isn't the hill you want to die on. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for being with us today on Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck. Join us again. We've got something you won't want to miss. Motherhood Talk Radio is a production of Beck Multimedia.